Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Hi, friends. Welcome back to All I Know. This is part two of our time with grace. If you've not listened to part one, I strongly suggest that you push pause on this segment and go back to part one for grace and pick that up before you jump into what she has to share with us today. Where we left off last time we were together, Grace had been diagnosed with cancer, and we had come to understand that it's a kind of cancer that never goes into remission, is never gone. It can lay dormant in one system, waiting to flare or not at any time in the future. So we're going to just rewind the conversation a minute or two from where we left off with Grace last time as a springboard into part two. Yeah, and this is where the biopsy comes back. And I still remember, I'll remember it till the day I die. I was walking through Whole Foods when my phone rang and it was the dermatologist, my doctor, telling me, you've got cancer. Uh, specifically, you've got cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. I have um, never heard of that even. It's a skin cancer. It's a T-cell um, It's a T-cell lymphoma, which is a lymphoma that lives in your skin. And specifically, it's uh, follicular tropic mycosis fungoides. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I hardly know how to describe it. Basically, the T-cells in your skin are going bonkers, um, and it results in these rashes. It results in uh, nodules, like uh, tumor-like nodules and stuff like that, and cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is not super rare. Follicular tropic mycosis fungoides, that subcategory of T-cell lymphoma is actually pretty rare. What's the difference? Like, what, what does that subset mean? Follicular tropic means that it specifically targets your hair follicles. And mycosis fungoides is it's an aggressive cancer. I'd have to like look it up to be able to give a definite, a, a, a solid response that you're looking for. But it's like a broad spectrum cancer. You know, because it's like most cancers you think of, you have a tumor. You know, it's like you've got a lump in your breast. You have a tumor in your brain, you know, or you've got a mole on your skin. And this is like this broad spectrum cancer that covers an extended area 
Well, and your skin is your largest organ. So if this cancer, you know, lives in the skin and takes over the skin cells, I mean, did you, were you dealing with the risk of it moving from your face to the other parts of your body? Yeah, and it did a little bit. For, for whatever reason, this subset of mycosis fungoides tends to target your face and your neck. And uh, sometimes it can also target your scalp. My doctor told me that most people who have it are in their 70s. Oh, my gosh. So you are 37 or 38 years old in yeah. Whole Foods after five years of chasing the rash on your face, three years of prednisone coming off of that culminated in two weeks of basically abusing yourself to try and deal with the itch. You're in Whole Foods and your doctor's like, Grace, it's cancer. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? He's like, you need to see an oncologist. And so he referred me to a radiation oncologist. And they were just sort of like, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to do radiation therapy for this. The problem is this cancer is unusual in that it's never gone. I still have it. I'll have it till I die. It never goes into remission. And the way that I describe it to people is it's kind of like herpes, which mm. is a, a fantastic you know, comparison. But it's like when, when somebody has herpes, they never don't have herpes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's there and it's just a matter of whether or not it is currently visibly present on your skin. Right. The virus is there or the disease is there. It's just is it flaring? Yeah, yeah. And so they basically said that it's like, look, we can treat it with radiation therapy. Not enough people have this cancer for us to be able to know what it's going to do or how well this treatment is going to work. Oh, but so awesome. After this period of time, now you're also an experiment. Yeah, yeah. And now it's just like, oh, well, we're going to we're going to throw radiation at it and we hope that'll help. We'll see what happens, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? I'm like, I don't fucking know. Where were you at this point with the script that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people? Well, funny thing. You know, I go home and I decide that I'm going to contact the people that are closest to me. I tell my husband, I don't remember how he responded. I think he said, oh, my God. But we didn't really talk about it. Interesting story. Um, I called my mom and told her. And her response was, oh, my God, did you have an abortion? What? Yeah. And I'm just like, what? It's the most obtuse response ever. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's like the implication being that this is some kind of a punishment or, you know, it's like I'm manifesting guilt from this horrible thing that I must have done. Oh, Grace. I contacted a friend of mine who was and still is an avid churchgoer. And, you know, I tell her what's going on and she's like, okay, well, how do you feel? And I was like, I feel like God hates me. Mm -hmm. And her response was, why? Just because something bad happened? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. Uh, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> and I contacted an another close friend and I told her, and she was like, okay. And she kind of absorbed the information. 
And about three days later, she called me up and started lambasting me, saying that I wasn't being supportive enough to her as a friend. Wait, wait. You weren't being supportive enough to her as a friend around your diagnosis of cancer? No, around whatever was going on in her life at the time. Oh, (laughs) shame on you for not being able to juggle that very well, Grace. I know, I know. It was just sort of like, okay, um... Oh, my gosh. And that, that was a real nail in the coffin in that friendship. <laughs> I would imagine. The thing is, though, I wouldn't say that this is where my break with evangelical Christianity was complete. But this was definitely where the full realization of how much I didn't want to be part of that really struck home. Because I would go to the aerial studio And I would literally sit in the corner and cry. I would just sit there and fucking cry. And everybody was just like, she needs to cry, you know? Let her cry. Yeah, let her cry. And, you know, I would, I would, you know, have these moments of just being really upset and really fucked up. And, you know, they'd come over and they'd be like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. I just, you know. Need a minute. Yeah, I just need a minute. Did you tell them what was going on with your diagnosis? And yeah, that's the thing is right about the time that I was diagnosed and I started going through radiation therapy was when the first student show that they ever did was being advertised to the students. You know, you know, if you want to take this class, you know, take the student show class and at the end of the series, at the end of the term, we'll put on this student show in this theater. And I remember thinking, you know, it's like, yeah, it'd be cool to do the student show, but I'm going through radiation therapy. I'm going through cancer. You know, I'm going through all this shit. I probably shouldn't apply for it. And about a week later, one of the owners of the studio called me. Her name is Stephanie. Stephanie calls me and she says, you haven't applied for the student show. And I'm like, yes, Stephanie, I know. I have not applied for the student show. I love it so much. Told her, I'm like, you know, I've got all this stuff going on. I'm I'm not okay, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, we are going to comp your classes for you to be part of the student show. Oh, my gosh. She's like, if you don't feel up to performing... When the time comes for the show to be put on, you don't have to. We just want you around so we can keep an eye on you. Oh, my gosh. I'm, like, covered in goosebumps. Right? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That is the most extraordinary kindness. Yeah. And right about the time that, you know, at the same time that that happened, uh, another friend of mine from the aerial studio, she was like, I want to help you get through this. And so I'm going to help you find your spirit animal. And I'm just like, okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That sounds cool. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I mean, I'm like, you know, evangelical Christian, you know, I've been trained from a very young age to look at this sort of thing and either be like, that's ridiculous or that's witchcraft. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I totally get it. My brain did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, But at that moment, it was just sort of like, you know what? This person is offering to put energy towards doing something to make this experience easier for me. 
Mm-hmm. And whether you believe in it, whether you agree with it or not, why would you turn that down? Mm-hmm. Why would you look down your nose at that offering? And so I was like, fuck yeah, man, let's do it. <laughs> so I went over to her house and she had me lay on the floor. She put on a uh, music track of some drums. Mm-hmm. Like a native drumming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, and she's not Native American at all. So in retrospect, it might have been kind of cultural appropriation-y. Um, and she walked around me, I think, with like a, I think a rattle of some kind. I'm not sure. Because my eyes were closed. And about... A minute later, she informed me, your spirit animal is a tiger. And I'm like, okay. All right. (laughs) That's the process. I lay down for a minute. (laughs) And I'm like, you know what? Thank you. You know, fucking thank you. Thank you for giving a shit. You know, thank you for regardless of how, you know, quote unquote, right or wrong or, you know, correct or incorrect this was. It's the gesture. It's the energy, like you said, that she was putting toward your healing and strength in an incredibly difficult time. And, you know, I'm surrounded by people who, I mean, and and it's weird because, you know, in the Bible, you read about how Jesus hung around with, you know, tax collectors and prostitutes. And it's like, it's not because he was saving them. It's because they're better fucking people. (laughs) 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 You know, (laughs) They're nicer. Um, And yeah, I mean, I'm surrounded by these people that my upbringing would have said to me, you should not associate with these people. And these were literally the people who were walking me through the most difficult era of my life. Mm -hmm. My coworker, uh, Charles, who I didn't know very well at that time, he is, in fact, Native American. Um, And even though we weren't terribly close, he had a shit ton of paid time off accrued. And I had to go on um, medical leave during radiation therapy. And I was the breadwinner in the house. My job was the one that was essentially paying all our bills because my husband was working part-time stocking shelves at Best Buy. And so my job was like, this is where our money is coming from. And now I can't work. Mm -hmm. And Charles actually donated something like 150 hours of PTO to me. Wow. Yeah. And so it was just like the juxtaposition of the support and love and mercy that I was being shown by people who had nothing to gain and had no long-term claim on me. You know, it's like, we weren't family. We weren't like childhood friends. These were people that were just kind of like, Hey, you're hanging around. We we like you. You know, we want you to be okay. Yeah. It was very eye opening, and, you know, set against the background of the indifference I was shown by the faith that I was raised in and the, well, if, if this is happening to you, God must want you to learn something. So figure it out. Or, you know, this is happening because you did something wrong. There's a reason. And it's like, what the fuck reason is it? What, what is the reason? Tell me. What's the reason? I'll wait any second now. You tell me what the reason is. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that telling people who are sick, telling people who are in pain that there's a reason 
is so, so cruel. I don't know if this is appropriate or related, but I remember having a conversation with somebody, a friend, oh, I don't know, a handful of years ago. And in this quest that humans have to make meaning of things and to make things make sense, Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard for us to accept that sometimes things just don't. Yeah. And I remember having the same feeling for a different reason that you're describing. We were sort of bantering a little bit about the idea of the law of attraction. And I had just gone through a significant death loss. And her stance in the conversation really was that we make everything happen. We draw everything to us. And Great. So, Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> But I was so upset in that conversation because what I was thinking about was this death loss and thinking the people who died in this tragic accident, I don't believe that they drew that to themselves. I don't believe that they made that happen. I don't think law of attraction has anything to do with any. I mean, we're just so messed up in our (laughs) desire to make things make sense and have things fit. And have things organized in a way that we can metabolize. We just are really, we are really jacked up because there's just a lot of things that we're just not going to understand that are just too big for our brains. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you know what, if there is a reason, great. But at the same time, it's just sort of like, you know what? How is that helpful? Yeah. It's just like, I'm I'm sorry. I'm just going to go ahead and say that, you know what, sometimes shitty things just happen and they fucking suck and you just survive it. Yeah. And if there is a reason, it's because you created a reason because of who you are, because of the way that you chose to respond event into your life gives it reason. Mm -hmm. But the idea of, you know, there's a reason. And then this happens to you. It's like, no, this happens to you and you find a way to, meaning yeah and you find a way to you know interpret that and have it inform the way that you live the rest of your life or it fucks you up forever you know it's like those are those are the choices and so in terms of my cancer and why i say that it's you know is is such a monumental event in my life is when i look at the life that i had before cancer I, I was pantomiming my way through life. I mean, I I had passions and I had things that I liked doing, but my awareness of who I was, was just not there. Also, my awareness of how fucked up my family was, um, how not great my friendships were, how, how I had just kind of drifted my way into an environment that really wasn't good for me. Had I not been diagnosed with cancer and had that, you know, it's like, it's like having, you know, shaking the snow globe, having that completely overturned my life. I don't think that I would have started going to therapy because I was a wreck. I was so fucked up. I would have stayed in that marriage for at least another five years. 
you know, had had the, the light of cancer not shown on that relationship and how unfulfilling it was and how unsupportive it was, I would have, you know, good Christian girl, I would have bulldozed my way on sheer inertia through at least another five years. And I also feel as though, you know, your capacity to empathize with people is proportional to the amount of pain that you have suffered in your own life. Mm. Because if nothing has ever happened to you, you do not know what to say to people who have just lost everything. Because, I mean, that's, that's a cliche. That's a platitude. I lost everything. And it's like, but have you ever really lost everything? I feel like um, that has made me a much better death investigator in that I have the means to talk to people, you know, like family members, friends, you know, interview. Just I have the means to operate in the world of traumatic deaths and tragedy and um, sorrow. I think that having so many things go so badly for so long gives you this this familiarity with that aspect of human existence. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say that you become comfortable dealing with it, but you are more apt to respond in a compassionate and empathetic way if you've been there yourself. What's interesting is um, I hadn't been diagnosed yet. I was about to be diagnosed with cancer. I was living in this other city with my husband. Already the marriage wasn't great. And in the midst of that, my dad died, mm. uh, which was rough because, I mean, he was, he was, the way I put it is like, he was the anchor that tethered me to the rest of the family. You were more connected to him? Yeah, we were really close. And so when he was gone, it was devastating. This is the other aspect of, you know, the medical examiner position kind of um, informing my life is I'm so acutely aware of my own mortality and the mortality of everyone around me, you mm -hmm. know, because of the cancer and because of being a death investigator. I think that a blessing of the cancer, not only like lighting a fire for things to change in my life is, you know, as a death investigator, you realize that it's like, you can't check out of your life because at any moment, literally any moment, it could just be over. It's one thing to hear that and understand it on an academic level. It's another mm. thing entirely to say goodbye to your husband and 30 minutes later get a phone call that he died in a car accident. And when my dad died, I had been a medical examiner, deputy medical examiner for about two years. I had already started having a lot of conversations with him that I felt were important. Even if that conversation was just like, making contact, telling him I loved him, you know, it's like, you know, making sure that he knew how important he was to me so that when he died, I was devastated, but I didn't have the same sense of incompletion that the rest of the family had. Everybody else lost their fucking minds. How could this happen? How could this happen? How could this happen? And I'm like, well, our family has a history of high blood pressure. Dad smoked half a pack a day and he drank too much. Um, I'm not shocked, you know, <laughs> right? Um, but also it's like, because I'd had 
I'd had so many um, good conversations with him in which I felt like nothing was unsaid. I didn't have that same sense of just, I'd almost say insanity, that same sense of like just grasping insanity that so many people in my family did. I really felt like our relationship was complete. And that's not something that a lot of other people were able to say. When cancer rolled around, it was definitely a re-emphasis of it's it's an acquired cancer. It's not genetic. You know, they don't know where it comes from. They don't know how it happened. They don't know why. And as a result, you know, it's like, well, you never you never really know when it's going to be you. I have my brain is going in two different directions right now. And I both of these questions, I feel, are important, but they're not necessarily holding hands very easily. So I might be a little clumsy here. Do you have to continue to have radiation treatment for your cancer? No, no, you're only, you can only have so much radiation treatment before you, you max out and you can't have more. And is that where you are? Yeah. Do you worry about cancer's impact on your mortality or do you think about your end being likely to be something else. Is that something you even have to consider with this kind of cancer? Is it legal? It is because at, well, where it is sitting is not lethal. Um, but also it's like most people that get it are in their Mm seventies. And so, you know, they're like, Oh, well the prognosis for this is, you know, three to five years. And it's like, well, that's because those people are like in their seventies and eighties and they were going to die anyway. So that's not really an adequate ruler, but it's, it's generally known that it's like, it cannot be cured at any moment. It could decide to do something crazy. Uh, it might metastasize. It might go to organs. It might go to bone. It might, it could do anything. And when you ask for, you know, okay, well, what's, what's the probability? They're like, we don't know. You know, it might never happen. It might happen tomorrow. We don't know. What the hell, Grace? I mean, living. So, okay. So actually maybe this fits really well then with the next question that I want to ask. This is coming from my own wrestling. So maybe no one else would feel this way. Sometimes I feel like I have this acute awareness about how close to the edge we all are. And you've described that a little bit, that looks like at any second, it could be over for any of us. And I often feel like I don't have the capacity to hold something that significant. It's like too much to bear and still be able to live. And still be able to function. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so I guess, how do you, with that tension coming at you with your diagnosis and the uncertainty of this kind of cancer and the lack of information and clarity you can have from the medical community. And then when you layer on top of that, your work as a death investigator and how acutely aware you are of that edge. 
how do you live with that and hold that and function? So I remember when I was first diagnosed, the analogy, metaphor, I always, I don't know which, which is which. The analogy that I described was it felt like someone was hanging a, a timer around my neck oh. and basically saying, here's your timer. It's not ticking right now. It might never start ticking. Also, at any moment, that timer could start ticking. And when it does, we don't know how fast it's going to tick. If it does. And it's like you're walking around like with this, this, this timer hanging around your neck and you're just like, is it ticking? Is it going to start ticking? When is it mm-hmm. going to start ticking? What do I do if it starts ticking? You know, how like, fast is it going to tick? What do I, I, how do, yeah, how do you hold that? You know, the funny thing is, is I realized that stopwatch was always there. You're just more aware of it now. It's always there. Everyone is wearing it. Yeah. And it's, it's, I always had a stopwatch around my neck. The difference is suddenly I saw it. And how does that affect how you live your life? Well, first of all, I realized that however much time that I had left, whether it was a lot or a little, I didn't want to waste it on the way I had been living. I didn't want that marriage. I didn't want those friends. I didn't want that emotional environment around me. Yeah, I started going to see a therapist. I started to kind of unearth the habits that made me choose really unhealthy relationships. I started doing my best to reconcile not necessarily how I ended up here, but pay attention to the mechanisms that were in my life that weren't helping me. I I don't want to make it sound like I came from a bad childhood because I know that my parents and the adults in my life, they led me down a path that they thought would serve me best based on what they knew about the world. And so to that end, I don't resent them. But it was also very important to acknowledge that some of the stuff you guys said to me and the way that you raised me and who you encouraged me to be and not be was pretty fucked up. And so I'm going to go and figure out all of that stuff now that I didn't have a chance to explore and figure out and understand and realize because I was so busy trying to be a good girl. And so, I, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's a really dumb platitude to be like, live each day like it's your last. But I would well, say... Well, it comes from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. What is, what is the, the, the phrase, all I know? Yeah. All I know is that I'm going to die. You know, and it's like people's first response to that is to say, don't say that. And it's like, why not? It's true. I'm going to die. You're going to die. You know, <laughs> we're going to die. There isn't any other destination. You know, it's like that is where we are all going. And you can let that paralyze you or you can let that inform how you choose to live. 
You can choose to not anesthetize yourself out of your experiences. Um, you can choose not to bury latent trauma that drives you into decisions that make your life worse instead of better. You know, you can check out of everything and watch Netflix for the rest of your goddamn life, you know, or you could recognize that this might be your only shot. You know, this, this might be your only shot at this existence, depending on what you believe about an afterlife or about God or about, you know, the universe. And if that's the case, don't you want to make it fascinating? <laughs> Don't you want to make it a good one? Don't you want to be aware? Don't you want to experience it? Don't you want to see what you can do that you never thought you could do? Don't you want to work on understanding yourself better? Don't you want to work on being a better person, on having better relationships, on fighting fights that are worth it, walking away from things that aren't? Because whether, whether you do one or the other, you're still going to die at the end of it. It's funny, I actually told that to a high school student yesterday who was interviewing me. She's doing a health occupations class. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what do you want people to know? And I'm like, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, he's 16, maybe. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Maybe I should have softened that blow a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you, Grace. This has been such, I don't even know what the right, I'm thinking back to what you said at the beginning about being adjectives. I don't even know what the right adjective is to describe this conversation, but I have loved it. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, Grace. So we're going to do our wrap up the way that we always wrap up this show, which I know you will appreciate as a fellow theater kid. It's the questionnaire that James Lipton used at the end of Inside the Actor's Studio. Oh, I've never seen it, actually. Oh, my gosh. You're kidding. <laughs> really? Well, you need to find a way to stream some episodes because it's brilliant and it totally taps into your theater geek. At least for me, it really does. <laughs> Grace, what's your favorite word? Aqueduct. Oh, I totally unexpected, but I like I, it. I like the way it feels to say it. Aqueduct. <laughs> What's your least favorite word? Triggered. (laughs) Well placed. (laughs) What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Being around, well, I mean, this is another kind of pain in the ass word, the word authentic. Being around passionate people and experiencing the creations of passionate people. What turns you off? This is kind of a tricky one. Um, Living in a state of mind in which everything that happens in your life is something that was done to you. So I would say, you know, on the one hand, you know, we've been talking so much about how, um, you know, there's a lot of shit that's going to happen to you that you have no control over. But I cannot, I, I just, I can't, I'm not a fan of learned and accepted victimhood. You know, an an attitude in which your life is something that was inflicted on you. You're powerless to do anything about it. That's not like across the board. Like, there are a lot of people that are in a very powerless position, and I don't want to diminish 
especially as a white heteronormative female, you know, it's easy for, for me to say, don't be a victim because it's like, how much have I been victimized in my life? Probably not as much as a lot of people out there, but I would say, you know, people who don't recognize or accept the responsibility that they do have uh, concerning the course of their life. What's your favorite curse word? <laughs> Probably motherfucker. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? I love the sound that my dog makes when I come home. What does he do? He's very talkative. And so it's like I'm, I'm convinced that if he had a human voice box, he would talk all the time. Because he makes this weird little trilling noise. Like I'll come in and he'll be like running around and he'll, and he'll make these little like whining noises like, meep, 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 meep. but then he'll do this. <laughs> and it's just the cutest fucking thing ever. He's happy to see you. What sound or noise do you hate? Oh, God, I hate the sound of my work pager. Mm. It's like it goes off and I, I feel it in my, in my spinal cord. I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> I hate it. So on that note, what profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? <laughs> I would like to be a consultant for crime procedurals on primetime television. Yeah, that sounds like a great job. Yeah, because they, they, they're so bad. They're so bad. It's like I, I watch these TV shows. But at the same time, I'm just like, that would never happen. That's not how that works. No, 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 <laughs> no. And I'm just, I, I would I would love for somebody to listen to me when I say those things. Here's how you need to write it, okay? It's like, look, this is the worst goddamn autopsy scene I've ever seen in my fucking life. Tighten it up, come on. What profession would you not like to do? I would not like to be, shockingly, uh, considering where we both came from, I would not like to be a celebrity. Mm. Which is weird to say because, you know, theater kid, you know, our, our whole life was about getting attention. I feel as though there's a lot of hate and scrutiny directed towards people who are celebrities. And like, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I want people to read my writing. You know, I want people to love my writing. You know, I want people to connect to it. And I, I want to be told I'm great. You know, <laughs> who doesn't? A tiny taste that I have gotten of notoriety was not fun. And I mean, I know they say, you know, don't read the comments. <laughs> Having people come for you that you've never met and you have no no contact with and having that kind of like judgment and having horrible things said about you in public and having to defend yourself or worse, not defend yourself. That just sounds awful. Recently, uh, I put up a, a TikTok video, you know, it's like my, my stepkids are teaching me how to use TikTok. And, um, I put up a video of myself at work and I was just, I was just driving to a scene and on this video, I'm like, yeah, I'm driving to a death scene. And I wanted people to kind of understand what we do, you know, how the medical examiner's office works, because there's so much information that is not correct on TV or online. 
And I'm like, I'm going to do a video about what kind of death scenes the medical examiner's office actually goes to. I didn't say anything about the deceased person. I didn't even give a gender. I was just like, this person, this is why this death falls under our jurisdiction. You know, this is why I'm going there. And this is this is a lot of what the medical examiner's office does as opposed to, you know, these big dramatic scenes that you see in, on TV. And so I put, put that up on TikTok. And I went to bed with 27 followers and I woke up with 18,000. Whoa! Yeah, it was. And I'm just like, what the fuck? And that video had something like 240,000 views. <laughs> and I was just like, wow. Oh, fuck, you know? And it was like, on one hand, it was like, this is really exciting. But then it was also just like, I don't want that many people looking at me, uh-huh. you know, because it's like there were people that were just like, I'm going to see that you get fired because this was super unethical for you to post this and blah, blah, blah. And it just it filled me with anxiety because suddenly it was like the responsibility of having so many people listening to you and having so many people that were waiting for you to do something wrong so they could call you out and cancel you. It was just like, Jen, it was. It, it filled me with so much anxiety that I actually took the video down because I was just like, I, I and yeah. it was, yeah. And so it's like, given that experience, you know, since then I've contacted my employer and I've been like, Hey, uh, I want to do these videos, but I want to discuss it with the public information officer to make sure that I'm compliant with our social media policy and stuff like that. Um, and so I'll, I'll probably keep posting stuff that's a little bit more carefully put together and considered. But I mean, just that moment of it was it was very rattling, and it yeah. made me realize that it's like maybe I don't want attention as much as I thought I did. <laughs> so that's that's a long answer to a very brief question. But what what job do you not want? I do not want that kind of celebrity status okay the final one grace if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you pass through the pearly gates your dad is fishing right over there why don't you go join him i love it (laughs) well thank you so much for having this conversation (laughs) with me absolutely i'm so glad to have had a chance to connect with you me too. Me too. And yeah. Telling your story kind of makes you realize how far you've come, what you've been through. Yeah, it can be a powerful thing to share where you've been and what you got from it. And I love that you were willing to do that with us. Thanks. <laughs> I hope that you're taking away from Grace's conversation tonight, too. I have so many things floating through my own mind that I'm going to be turning over, I know, in the days to come. But one of the things that I'm walking away with today specifically has to do with that idea of really having a healthy respect for how close we all are to the edge. Because like Grace said, we're all going to die. And so what do we want to do? Not in a trite way, but in a very sincere way. What do we want to do with the time that we have ticking on that invisible timer around our necks? And is there a way to wake up in our own life 
it sounds like from the things that Grace shared with us that part of what helped her wake up in her life was cancer and struggling with her diagnosis. And that she used that phrase about shedding a light on other areas of her life and helping her get really clear about what she wanted. And the thing I'm coming away with tonight is, is there a way for us to turn that light on? without having to tangle with cancer or some other tragedy? Is there a way that we can be more awake and more engaged in our own lives? Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, Please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, it should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado, and our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma, and we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me, with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I know at I-N-W-A-R-D-B-O-U-N-D-C-O.com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to allIKnow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you catch all the light you can.